Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. As we begin to wrap up 2021, and as I begin to wrap up this here educator season of the Studs Pod, I gotta tell you, upon reflection here, that I'm not sure I know how I would have gotten through the impossibilities of 2021 without the opportunities that this podcast provides me to engage with people and without the kind words and the good love I get from some of the listeners to this podcast. I gotta thank all of you who just drop a line, show your support, offer insight, sometimes offer advice. It makes a big difference. And I'm wicked grateful. And I expect no more than that. But if you've been listening to studs, if you've learned something, you know, if you felt connected to our conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com studs and see what you can get for supporting the podcast. No pressure, but for a couple bucks a month, you can help keep this project going strong. And I'm feeling pretty grateful for a new patron of the podcast. Kim Douglas has been a loyal listener and a supporter of this podcast since day one. When our daughters would play together, she'd patiently endure my babbling about my hopes and my fears for this podcast. And she was always kind enough to listen. And even more, you know, she seemed genuinely interested, so much so that she occasionally messages me with kind words about an episode that touched her. And that kindness and grace, it's enough for me. But lo and behold, Kim Douglas just became a patron of this here project, and I'm genuinely grateful. Thanks for all your support, Kim Douglas. I appreciate you. And yo, listeners, if the time isn't right for you to donate to Studs, I get it. We are good. But it would mean the world to me if you could just do this. Hit subscribe or follow. You can do it now if you want. Then, tell a pal or two about this podcast. Maybe recommend an episode that you think would speak to them. You don't have to twist their arm. Just share it. And in doing so, join me in my effort to avert our ears from celebrity navel-gazing and political pablum and to focus on regular working people and their lives and their stories and their feelings. And the life and the story and the feelings of this man mean a lot to me. Once an esteemed high school teacher, later a university professor, Dr. Bruce Field spent much of his career preparing and inspiring aspiring educators for a career in teaching and learning. Bruce developed a language to empower young people who have the instinct and the moral clarity to spend their working lives serving America's youth. We talk about what he did to start teachers on their professional journeys. And I'll tell you, I find myself moved by the earnestness and the optimism at the core of his professional commitment. You will too. You'll see. So please join me in conversation with Bruce Field. <laughs>
Bruce Field, welcome to Studs. After a long, distinguished career in education in various capacities, you rather recently retired. Can you briefly walk me along your professional path and describe the various hats you wore in the fertile fields of teaching and learning? Yeah, three and a half years ago, I ended a 40-year career in education, which when I looked back on it, and by the way, thanks for doing this because it kind of helped me look back on it, um, I realized that I had uh, a 40-year career split into two segments. Uh, the first of those segments was the first 15 years, and then uh, obviously, do your math, uh, the last 25. But in the first 15 years, I was living my dream of, of being a high school history and social studies teacher. I spent two years, my very first job was in a really tiny little school in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, tiny in the sense of 125 students, K through 12. I went from there, uh, after two years, I moved to the Chicago area and ended up at Morton East High School in the Berwyn Cicero communities just outside of Chicago. I spent one year there. And then I finished my uh, P-12 career with uh, eight years at a high school in Newport News, Virginia, which is where I'd spent most of my growing up years. Those 11 years of teaching, P-12, history, social studies, I enjoyed it tremendously. Had a lot of great students, still have good friendships with a lot of those students. But in reality, I had kind of an academic itch that I needed to scratch. And so while I was in uh, Virginia, I decided to uh, go ahead and get my PhD in history. So I roamed up the uh, road to the College of William & Mary, they wouldn't let you do the PhD program part-time, so I had to quit the teaching gig. And four years later, I had a PhD in hand, and I figured that, hey, I'd find a job teaching history at a college or university, and life would just move on in the history lane. But as always happens, or seemingly happens a lot, uh, something funny kind of happened along the way. <laughs> and I spent the last 25 years not so much in the role of historian and a teacher of history, but instead my career moved into preparing new teachers. That started when I was hired my first gig at the university level was at Northern Illinois. Uh, they did hire me in a history department, uh, but honestly what they really wanted me there for was, based on 11 years of high school history teaching, they wanted me to run the teacher certification program for people who wanted to become secondary history or social studies teachers. So I taught the methods class, the teaching methods class. I advised all the students uh, who thought that this was what they wanted to do. I coordinated school placements, walked across campus to meet the folks in the College of Education. So together we could figure out how to prepare uh, young teachers uh, for high school history and social studies classes. I did that for about eight years and I probably worked with about 300 teacher candidates in that eight year period. But uh, in 2001, I left NIU, and I took a job at the University of South Carolina in the College of Education. And I spent 13 years there. The exact job title was a mouthful. It was Executive Director of School University Partnerships and Clinical Experiences. Oh, my. Uh, what that long title meant was that South Carolina placed about 700 teacher candidates a year out in the schools, and I was, at least me and my staff, we were responsible for placing those candidates out in the schools. Uh, but more importantly, 
We were responsible for making sure that the relationship between the College of Education at USC and the public schools was, was a positive one, and that they were willing to work with teacher candidates. And most of those teacher candidates, by the way, did a really great job. But uh, in my role as the uh, school university partnership guy, I had a, a responsibility that I've often described as the Darth Vader role. Uh, <laughs> it's when a candidate who was out in the schools wasn't quite doing what he or she needed to do to be successful in, in working their way toward becoming a teacher. So I often was the person who went out into the schools and tried to see if we could get that teacher candidate back on track. And more often than not, we were able to do so, but other times, not so much. I also at South Carolina wore two other hats. The state of South Carolina has a program called Teacher Cadet, where they introduce high school juniors and seniors to the teaching profession. And in order to have a Teacher Cadet program, the school had to have a relationship with a university. So I was the university partner who went out into, I think it was 12 high schools in the Columbia, South Carolina area, to talk to young people, to talk to juniors and seniors about what it meant to be a teacher and how they could go about getting themselves into the profession. So that was one hat. The other hat that I wore at the University of South Carolina actually got me involved with teacher preparation on a national level because I got involved with a group of people who launched a national association. The group was called the National Association for Professional Development Schools. And we launched that in uh, 2003. And uh, actually, I was honored to be the uh, first president of that national organization. Um, and that kind of opened my eyes because now I was talking not just to teacher candidates in high school history or, for that matter, teacher candidates from early childhood on up through high school. But I was talking to educators from around the country who were similarly you know, working on this teacher preparation gig. So I did that for 13 years at the College of Education at USC. Uh, and then I finished my career um, at Georgia Southern University. Um, I left South Carolina in 2014, came on down to Statesboro, Georgia, where they hired me as the chair of the Department of Teaching and Learning. The Department of Teaching and Learning was is the uh, department that houses all of the teacher certification programs, all the way, again, from early childhood through secondary. And so, again, I worked with local schools who were willing to uh, host teacher candidates. The difference at Georgia Southern and at South Carolina, of course, is that I was no longer directly involved with students per se, although both uh, South Carolina and Georgia Southern were uh, gracious enough to allow me to find ways to go and talk to their teacher candidates as often as I possibly could. And so the last 25 years of my professional career were focused solely on uh, teacher preparation. So I retired three and a half years ago. Uh, I've been putting my kayaks back in the water, been working yes. on the golf game and uh, traveling around the country. So it's been a good 40 years, but it didn't turn out the way that I thought it would turn out when I jumped in feet first to be a history teacher. Um, I ended up instead being a teacher educator, and I'm really happy with that. And despite my desire to dive into your life as a kayaker and golfer, <laughs> yeah. it is indeed your role as a teacher educator that I want to focus with you on today. I'm really curious about 
how you taught aspiring teachers. And in particular, I'm curious about how you taught like the 21 year olds who know everything and know nothing to become effective classroom teachers. Like, how do you start them on that journey? Like, do you have an opening pitch that you give them? I did have an opening pitch. I would say to them, listen, pretend that you are a local school board and you're charged with hiring that district's teachers. What are the three traits that you would look for in making those hiring decisions? And I'd break them off into little groups and allow them to kind of haggle through that. And uh, they would come back with their answers. (laughs) You know, I, I all along would tell them, of course, there are no right and wrong answers, but of course, there is a right and wrong answer. Um, so when they finally got, you know, they, they added their input and then I looked at them and I said, okay, let's, let's break this down very simply. Let's break it down into the three letters K, S, D. So the three traits that a, a, somebody who's hiring a teacher really ought to be looking for, that K stands for knowledge. You can't teach what you don't know. Now that may have come to me from an experience as a history teacher, because I'm thinking you can't teach history if you don't know history. But even, I think even more critically, elementary school teachers, good Lord, they, they teach a little bit of everything. The second letter is S, which is skills, because, uh, hey, Daniel, you and I probably have met a few people in our lives who had all the knowledge in the world, but couldn't teach their way out of a wet paper bag. Should we, so, should we name them now? No, we shall not name any of them. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But uh, skills. Um, you know, even the most knowledgeable individual is not going to succeed if, if he or she can't design ways to get his or her students actively engaged in their own learning. So as a teacher candidate, you need to develop skills. And finally, the D, which is what most of them, when, when I ask them to give me their, their answers, they usually come up with things like, well, they have to be caring individuals and open-minded and flexible. And I said, yep. And all of those things are called dispositions. Because again, even if you have all the knowledge in the world and have developed you know, some skills in the classroom, if you don't have a healthy attitude toward your students or toward teaching, or more generally speaking about the world around you, you're not going to succeed in a classroom. And then I say to them when I'm done giving them this KSD overview, we're here to help you as much as we possibly can, but a lot of this falls really right in your lap. Frankly, knowledge, you know, that's on you. You know, you need to get yourself prepared content-wise. So that's not our job. That's your job. And dispositions, well... Either you've got them or you don't, and we'll talk to you about dispositions and the kind of positive attitudes you need to have in a class. But again, dispositions are on you. So knowledge and dispositions are on the teacher candidate, but the skills part, that's our job. Our job as teacher educators is to make sure that we help you develop as many positive skills in the classroom as you possibly can so that you can be you know, a success. So that's my, uh, that's my opening pitch to candidates. These are the things that we expect out of you as prospective teachers. That's the pitch. It makes perfect sense to me, and I respect the pitch. 
If you don't mind me asking a quick question about your feelings, Bruce. Yeah. What did it feel like to be in front of a room of prospective teacher candidates? Like the first time you meet with them. Right. What kind of feeling did you get? Um, <laughs> hopeful. I think when I look around a room of, of young people who have, for whatever reasons, brought them to this position in life where they're thinking about teaching as a career, I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful. I'm hopeful that whatever it is that brought them there will help them to become the best teachers they possibly can. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of look around the room and, and kind of chuckle at the whole thing and, and just go, my God, there are people who really want to do the teaching thing. And I am both hopeful that they will succeed as well as grateful for the fact that they've gotten themselves here in front of me. I mean, the whole project is really steeped in hope, oh, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and as I think I already said, most of those young people that I would see sitting in front of me, they do exactly what they need to do and they turn out to be great teachers. So I'm curious, you have this group of young people before you, you walk them through the KSD, ideally you're inspired, you have a sense of hope. What are the big lessons that you seek to share with these teacher candidates? Well, you're right. It's, it's after the KSD. So beyond that, when I initially meet with teacher candidates, and in fact, in conversations that I have with them, you know, farther down the road as our relationships develop, there's about five other things just off the top of my head that um, I really want them to focus in on as they think about this profession. The first of those five is the absolute importance of being prepared each and every day. <laughs> if you walk in there completely unprepared, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a disaster. And it's, it's always better to be overprepared than it is to be underprepared. So that's the first of five things. Um, the second thing that I talk to them about a lot is the recognition that they're actually entering a profession that, like any other profession, has rules, has expectations, has a pecking order, you know, has administration, and there are things that you are going to need to do to stay within, as much as you can, the confines of that kind of administrative order of the environment that you're going to be in. Uh, third, I tell them that they should not be afraid to ask for help. One of the things that I've learned in my 25 years of doing this is that there are plenty of people out there who are willing to help you. So if you get stuck, if you can't quite figure something out, don't be afraid to ask for help. And related to that, fourth would be, you know, if you begin to think that maybe this is not for you, there's really no embarrassment in admitting that and thinking about perhaps another life path. And then finally, and, and actually, I read a lot. I read a lot. I've always read a lot in my life, but I've read a whole lot more in retirement. And I recently read a book by Scott Ellsworth, Scott Ellsworth, The Groundbreaking. And it's about the 1921 Tulsa, Oklahoma race massacre. And Ellsworth wrote the book because he grew up in Tulsa and he went to school in Tulsa. 
And so toward the end of the book, he wrote about his experiences as a student in Tulsa, Oklahoma's school system. And he talks specifically about his seventh grade shop teacher. And then he described his shop teacher. He said, this is a direct quote from me. He said, the teacher was, quote, tasked not only with teaching us how to use a drill press, but how to behave like human beings. <laughs> yes. And I think it's incredibly important. I don't care if you're an early childhood kindergarten teacher or a high school science teacher. It's incredibly important for teachers to take that responsibility seriously and to design their learning environments in such a way that we can actually do a better job of talking to each other. Uh, don't get me started down a political role here. Yeah, I hear you. But to have people behave like human beings and treat people like human beings, you know, that to me is a critical cornerstone of the lessons that I really want to share with aspiring teachers. Right, to encourage and inspire them to help to bring out the better angels right. in the nature of their little angels in the classroom, right? <laughs> of course, yes. That's the game, isn't it? Right, right. So I want to talk about a couple of those five points. Okay. Um, perhaps we'll start here. So much of what you do is wrapped up in creating a critical dialogue and a self-reflective dialogue around young teachers seeking to bring out the best in their students. And it's critically important for them to do that, as you said, for them to be able to ask for help. Right. How do you talk to aspiring teachers about how to grapple with the nearly inevitable ego problem that emerges when they are in their first or second year of teaching and they're wet behind the ears. Right. They make tons of mistakes every day. There's pain and shame, frustration around that. Sure. They see it going bad. They feel it going cattywampus. How do you talk to them about what it takes to be humble enough to ask for help? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. Um, first of all, you mentioned the word ego. I, I perhaps should have added that as a sixth point. One of the things that I can remember myself saying to large groups of students and to individual students, but it worked better, I think, in the larger groups is, you know, leave your ego at the door. By the way, also leave your, I mean, I know this is hard to do and whatnot, but leave your family problems at the door. Leave your personal issues at the door so that you can focus on what it is that you need to do in a classroom. And the other thing I would tell them, um, you know, in addition to leave your ego at the door is, you know, the things you're feeling right now, every educator has felt before. Um, I could even share with them some stories from my own personal disasters when I entered the teaching profession. But one of the things that they need to do in, in leaving their ego at the door and, and being willing to understand that, hey, you're not alone. What they need to think about is they need to look at themselves and examine what got them here. What is it about them personally that led them to teaching? You use the phrase cattywampus, and you know, as things start to go down the tubes, you know, take a deep breath, sit back and ask yourself, you know, who am I? 
And, and what got me to this point? Now, hopefully, 99 times out of 100, what got them to the point was the desire to do all of those kinds of things that I've talked about already, which is help people learn and be the best possible teacher they can be. But they also need to understand that it's a tough job. You know, despite that rumor that floats out there around the world, at least here in the States, far too often, you know, hey, anybody can teach. That's just flat out not true. Something brought you to this point. Something brought you to the point where you want to actually make a positive impact on young people's lives. So, you know, if you need to take a deep breath and step back, do that. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Is a lot of the work that you did as a teacher educator wrapped up in precisely that? Like, you'll be fine. It's okay. This happens to everyone. Check your ego. Remember who you are. And coaching and empowering and walking beside them towards some comfort and some optimism? (laughs) I know you probably want me to come up with some long answer to that, but my answer is, well, Daniel, you got it right. Yeah, that's what this is all about. Now, there's a reason why teaching is considered a helping profession or a service profession, if you will. It's because it's about humanity and it's about people operating together in a classroom environment and helping each other grow. I mean, maybe one thing to talk to young teacher candidates about is, you know, you're not only helping the young people grow, but trust me, the longer you stay in this profession, (laughs) the more you're going to understand that those kids in front of you are helping you grow as well. It's a two-way street. So yeah, that's really what a lot of this is all about. Well, it is a two-way street. And here's sort of a two-part problem that I know you'll be able to tackle. Because it seems while on one hand, you want to empower them and embolden them and provide them with confidence, you also want your aspiring teacher candidates to be humble and to check that ego at the door. Right. How do you do both of those things at once? That's, it's interesting the way you phrase that, because I don't think I've necessarily put together in this same thought process, the reality of, yes, we're trying to empower them, but hey, you know, don't get too full of yourself. We all have stories of people who come into a classroom with uh, reams and reams of yellowed papered notes from 20 some years ago and stand in front of a classroom and babble. That's not teaching. You can feel empowered to be in front of a group of students you know, but the empowerment is not being in front of the students. The empowerment is being with the students. And so in that sense, you know, you definitely need to leave your ego at the door so that my definition, if you will, of empowerment uh, is, is a possibility. You know, it was, it was a great movie title, by the way. The movie title, Stand and Deliver. That was a great, great movie. But it's a horrible, horrible mode of teaching. You know, I I love classrooms where students are actively engaged, and that is a demonstration of giving up your ego so that you can empower students in the classroom, not just the teacher candidates, but the students in the classroom, to really feel comfortable to jump in feet first and, and get into whatever it is they happen to be getting into that particular day. So it's an interesting, I'll, I'll have to think more about that, the, the idea of balancing empowerment and ego. Right? Good thought there, Daniel, good thought. 
Well, I think we're all struggling with it every day and perhaps particularly these days. So I think that's where the thought comes from. You're a great storyteller, Bruce. And I was wondering if you might be willing to share a story of a teacher in training whose capacity to thrive, shall we say, in teaching really concerned you. But like you really closely mentored this person and, and in the end... They really became stellar teachers, teachers that you could be proud of having gone through your program. I can think of one in particular, um, and it was when I was at the University of South Carolina. You know, it's, it's a really delicate process to place teacher candidates in schools. I mean, you're, you're taking one stranger and putting them in a classroom with another stranger, and you hope that they become something more than strangers. There was a young man, I think it was in 2007, he was doing his final student teaching, and I had placed him at an elementary school in the Columbia, South Carolina area. And right away, he started exhibiting traits at his school that almost always resulted in a teacher candidate being removed from the program. He was complaining about the school itself. He was complaining about the coaching teacher that he was assigned to work with. He was complaining about, you know, I said that one of the things teachers ought to know is this is a profession with an administrative structure. You know, he was kind of putting himself above and thinking he knew better than everybody in that school what it was that should be done in in the classroom. And so he approached me and he asked me if he could move. He wanted to move to a different classroom or to a different school. Typically, I would never put anybody in a different classroom in the same school. That kind of gets really murky. And to be perfectly honest, typically when I got comments from teacher candidates like this, because I knew the faculty in that school, I almost invariably just sided with the school. And so I went out to investigate what was going on with this young man. And surprisingly to me, his concerns had a little bit more validity to them than I had had thought. He still had issues with attitude, and he still had issues with thinking that he knew a little bit more than, uh, than others did. But I can't remember the exact circumstances of why, but I agreed to actually move him to a different school. At the same time I did that, I also told him, look, you do have some things that you need to work on. I said, and I tell you what, you have your university supervisor who's working with you and whatnot, but I'd like to just kind of personally take you on as a mentor-mentee relationship. So in the weeks that followed, he and I would meet pretty regularly. At first, I was... I really don't think, I really don't think he can, even in the new environment, I don't think he was going to succeed. But frankly, he worked on his attitude. He worked on his planning skills, which was one of his biggest faults. And he he completely turned it around, had a great student teaching experience. And then actually, four years later, he wrote me a note. He wrote me a note saying, hey, do you remember me? You know, I was the guy that you thought was going to bomb out. And uh, the way he put it, he said, you saved my career. And I I then later learned that he went back and he was doing an undergraduate program at the time. He went back, he got his master's, and he currently is one of the lead mentors for teacher candidates who are placed at the school that he's teaching. So, you know, I was wrong about it. Um, 
you know, I, I very rarely, like I say, move, move teacher candidates, but there was something about the situation that it gave me confidence that he could turn it around, and he did. I was pleased. Oh, that's great, man. I'm happy to hear that you took a leap of faith in the young man. Yeah. Listen, Bruce, I'm not entirely sure about the details of this young man's issues with the administrative order at the institution in which he was placed. Right. And I'm not going to ask about those details, but I'm curious about this. I think you and I share what I hope is a reasonably healthy disdain for institutional life. Got that. Yeah. 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 What we want to do is to <laughs> train teachers to have the critical faculties to call bullshit on the institution. Correct. But to do so, but to do so in yes, such a way. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you can call bullshit on the institution, but first of all, that doesn't alleviate you of your own responsibility for the situation that you're in. But when you do call bullshit on the institution, you should do it in a way that doesn't give the institution an excuse to shoot you. When you go into the profession, you're you're in a bureaucratic structure. And as much as, yeah, I've never been comfortable, isn't that weird? I've never been comfortable with a bureaucratic structure, although I was a department chair and you know, school university partnership director. You have to learn. And, you know, sometimes like swallowing that castor oil stuff, you know, you've got to learn how to operate within the system as distasteful as that sometimes can be. And that's what I want to ask you. Like, what are the lessons that you impart upon some of the sharper, more critical minds that you have the opportunity to work with? Like, what do you teach those kids who you really want to support in part because their built-in shockproof crap detectors are turned on? Right. What do those conversations sound and feel like? I talk to them about my own experiences in dealing with bureaucracy. There, there's something in the power of storytelling. You know, so I, I think in many ways, it's just a matter of, of doing that, taking those people. You describe them well. There are people who are high flyers. There are people who really want to make a difference. But sharing stories with teacher candidates about that has been my best way of being able to do that. Yeah, I think that's probably wise. The stories probably uh, go a long way. Hey, I can't help but wonder about the other side of this young man about whom you shared a story where you were able to kind of bring him around and mm -hmm. help him to find a voice in the space and, and a new school for that matter. Maybe you might share the darker, perhaps more challenging version of that story. Like, have there been cases where you've felt obliged to convince an aspiring teacher to aspire to do something other than teach? What do you do in those circumstances? Like, how do you grapple with that? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, fun it's funny you should ask that question right there after we talk about bureaucracy and administration. Uh, have there been cases where I felt it was necessary to dissuade somebody from going into the profession? Daniel, there have been more examples than I care to count. Um, you know, count up the numbers of people that I've worked with as teacher candidates through the years. There's thousands of them. And of those thousands over the last 25 years, a huge percentage of them were absolutely great. 
had their heart in the right place, willing to put in the work, eager to learn. But, you know, with those kinds of numbers, thousands, you're going to occasionally run into somebody who just, uh, (laughs) you know, they're not cutting it. Frankly, they know they're not cutting it. And so you have to kind of figure out where they go from there. What I've found works best, a couple of things. What I've found worked best is to get everybody together to talk about this one person's dilemma. Um, When I say get everybody together, every teacher candidate who goes into a classroom has that classroom teacher, we call them coaching teachers, that they're working with. They also have a university supervisor, a faculty member from the university who comes in and works with the teacher candidate and the coaching teacher to kind of structure things and evaluate the performance of the teacher candidate. And then there are assistant principals at the building and principals who, frankly, are quite well attuned to what's going on in their classrooms and whatnot. And so when I've run across these uh, disaster cases, it's best to get everybody together in the same room to share their perspectives on how things are going. That's sometimes tough to do because not all professionals want to be open and honest. And I think that, by the way, is a sidebar to this. That's the worst possible thing you could do for a teacher candidate who's struggling is not to tell them, hey, you're struggling. I remember one case of a a young lady who was also in an elementary program at South Carolina. We brought her in and we had the principal, the assistant principal, me, the student teacher, the coaching teacher, and the uh, university supervisor. And that student just sat there and would not budge that she felt she was absolutely correct. It's really important that you cross your T's and you dot your I's in working with these candidates. You just can't say to them, you know, you're not doing it, so out the door you go. I mean, you you usually have a a plan in place, a remediation plan to try to help them get to where they need to be. But in those cases where remediation doesn't work, when you sit down and have that ultimate meeting that says, look, you need to find something else to do with your life, you better be sure that you are, in fact, following already established protocols. In these rather litigious times, disappointed candidates will, in a heartbeat, threaten to bring in a lawyer and uh, press a lawsuit because you have done them wrong. I had more examples of that than I care to count, but knock on wood, I batted a thousand and managing to avoid the lawyers. So, uh, yeah, there are people who need to be counseled out of the profession, but you need to do it within the protocols within the profession. And before you do it, you need to give them every opportunity that you possibly can to help them improve. Because, good Lord, after all, if they're not doing what they need to be doing, then who is it who's mostly getting hurt? It's those young kids that are in that teacher candidate's classroom. They're not being provided a proper learning environment because of somebody's weaknesses. I hate to do it to you, but can you give me a numerical sense of... Like, what percentage of the teacher candidates did you send out into the world that you're you're thrilled and you're eminently confident that they're going to do superlative work? What percentage did you send out there like, this probably isn't going to end well, but we did the best we could? (laughs) Like, what, what what are we talking there? And let's just say the rest fall in the middle. Oh, wow. That last part made me chuckle. I I really hope that I never said to myself, 
oh my God, we're going to send this person out. I know it's going to be a disaster somewhere down the road, but please, Lord, you know, help it not be a disaster. <laughs> well, no, I didn't say that. You know, I didn't say that. But like, let's just say you have like real concerns. Right. You have reason to believe that they're going to have a long road. Yeah before they can be effective teachers, if they ever make it there, what percent could be characterized as such? And then give me the yeah, polar opposite. Yeah. I think the I think both numbers are pretty close. I'm thinking here of thousands of, of teacher candidates. I'm thinking of the files I have. I want to I want to deal on the positive first. <laughs> the ones who I know for a fact are going to go out there and make a difference in kids' lives. Yeah, the rest of them all fall in the middle. Most of the teacher candidates are going to be good. But if you're asking which ones are going to be great, which ones are going to have that fizz effect, you know, it's a small number, but it's somewhere between, I don't know, five and eight percent. At the other end is an equal number of maybe four to six percent who, uh, yeah, we did the remediation and we think they'll be okay, and I'm hoping that they will be okay. The vast majority, Daniel, like I say, the vast majority of teacher candidates are going to be good. They're going to fall in that middle. I, and when I say good, I'm, you know, we're talking B, C. We're not talking about the Ds and the Fs. But the As are a small percentage, and the Fs are a small percentage as well. I'm real curious, Bruce. What do you make of the assertion that great teachers are born and not made like that five or eight percent on the top are those people born and maybe just to hedge a little bit because i know the language of that could be all problematic right like do you have the sense that great teachers have an x factor that just can't be taught and you're there in your capacity as a teacher educator to just like help them to hone those skills Right. You know, help to like make sure that they have that knowledge base. But the disposition is there. They're ready for the skills. They're ready to roll. What do you make of this like X factor thing? What do I think about the line that great teachers are born and not made? I think it's a load of crap. I prefer the X factor because all great teachers do have an X factor. But I don't think to put the two together, I don't think they were born with that X factor. And the X factor is the dispositions. You know, the knowledge and the skills, that's one thing. And I assume that they gathered, <laughs> that's the proper verb, gathered those dispositions, you know, through the early years of their lives, through good parenting, through other people who served as mentors, as them being observant people who kind of looked around at the world and said, you know, there is good to be done. I think that's the X factor, but I think it's an X factor that's learned. It's not an X factor that they're born with. And, and people listening to this are probably going, well, yeah, here's a guy who spent his whole life training teacher candidates. So he's got, <laughs> he's got a dog in this fight. He's got a pony here. The pony he wants to ride is, yeah, you know, uh, becoming a great teacher requires intensive training. And, and we've been providing that intensive training. But it does help if that teacher candidate happens to have his or her heart in the right place to begin with. But uh, in this old nature versus nurture argument in sociology, I'm not with the nature side. I'm, I'm on the nurture side. Great teachers being born and not made. Nope. Never bought it. Won't buy it. Haven't bought it. I'm with you. Well, you don't need to be with me, but I appreciate the fact that you are. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I'm curious about this too, man. So maybe if we could put a little twist on the X factor thing. Okay. 
So I've been teaching for 21 years now, and I have, in those years, become increasingly humble. One of the humbling facets of the gig is my knowledge that I might think that what I'm doing is hot shit. I might have a good day in the classroom and I feel real good about it. But A and B, A, I know that if it feels real good, it's 95 times out of 100 because of what my students brought to the table. Right. And B, I live with the knowledge that what I do is very specific to the environment in which I teach. If I tried the same lesson or if I had the same approach in different environment, you know, 55 kids in an urban environment or, you know, 19 good old boys (laughs) out in Nebraska somewhere, it's not, it might not fly as well. So I guess what I'm trying to ask here is like the teachers in training that you work with rarely know where they're going to land a gig. And given the educational inequality and geographical diversity in the U.S., How do you even begin to train a group of aspiring teachers, some of who are going to end up in a posh suburb, others are going to end up in a rough metropolitan neighborhood, others in a farm town? Like, how do you in your work navigate that kind of complexity? That's a really great question. And my answer is going to sound a little odd because I think the concern is a bit overblown. And here's why I think that. To go back to where I started, in my 11 years of P12 teaching, (laughs) I taught in three really different environments. That little uh, 125 K through 12 school in the middle of Wyoming was 100% white kids, the sons and daughters of sheep ranchers (laughs) in rural Wyoming. Second group that I worked with in Berwyn and Cicero, just outside Chicago was a 50-50 combination of Eastern European, Czechoslovakian kids and Latino kids. And they both wore their gang colors to school. Finally, the third place that I, that I worked as a P-12 educator in Virginia was a 50-50 mix of black and white kids you know, in a suburban Virginia town. And what I found was that all of those students... If you treat them as human beings, they're all pretty much the same. If you treat them equally, you know, you're going to be successful. That doesn't mean that the same lesson in a Wyoming classroom would work in that Berwyn Cicero classroom. You've got to have enough common sense to know to tweak your lessons. I I remember when you were asking that question, I was thinking back on one of our teacher candidates who... um, developed a lesson for a a class of second graders, and then she tried to pull the same lesson off in a class of sixth graders. (laughs) And it it was miserable. She just fell flat on her face. But my reality has been I taught in all those different places. Kids appreciate if you treat them as human beings and as people. Now, that said, I do think it's really critical for all teacher preparation programs to build in an experience or two into their programs that helps students understand cultural diversity. 
And that's, I think, getting more and more critical as, as the years go by. For example, here at Georgia Southern, um, we actually have a class. It's a required class for every teacher candidate, whether they're, again, early childhood or secondary. We have a specific required course that focuses on cultural diversity and an amazing group of faculty who push the boundaries a lot in getting uh, teacher candidates to address the, the issues of cultural diversity. We also have a simulation where we bring all of our faculty together and teacher candidates in a, a sort of a realistic reinterpretation of uh, a life community, which helps students understand that, hey, you know what? Not everybody lives like I do. And better yet, and more importantly, that's okay. Yeah, it's important to have something built into the program, but maybe I was just fortunate. I don't know, but I thought that I did a, a decent job in, in rural Wyoming and, and Chicago and, and Virginia. The kids are very different. They come from different backgrounds, but a little bit of openness and honesty and humanity, you know. So call me naive. You know, it doesn't really work. Well, I found that it worked, and I, I guess I was just a little bit fortunate in that regard. Yeah. Does that answer that question? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think you're probably right. Seeing the classroom as a sacred space and a place to share humanity and to just be empathic and engaged, like that probably does get you 95% of the way there. The other 5% is probably pretty easy to tweak. I'm sold on your proposition. Okay. And perhaps in retrospect, I, I see the question almost as a bit foolhardy. Oh, no, it's a question everybody's asking. In education circles, everybody's asking that question. It's a legitimate question. I just think that you can figure out the X factor and who it is that you're putting in a classroom. And I think the very good question that you ask can be answered much simpler than perhaps most people think it could be. And I, I appreciate there's a certain elegance in that simplicity I think a lot of people probably benefit from hearing that answer. I think it speaks to our shared human experience. What else do you wish people knew about the work that it takes to train teachers to thrive? Like if you could share with our audience some hard-earned lessons that you've developed over your time doing this, what do you wish they knew about what it takes to make this endlessly challenging, cautiously optimistic, eternally hopeful colossus of the P-12 system work for all kids? I wish they knew just that, that it takes a lot of work. I wish people could actually see, and I think seeing would help people believe see what it takes and what people put in to trying to help prepare young people. So, for example, here at Georgia Southern, and I say that because, by the way, because I'm sitting in a studio here at Georgia Southern, they were nice enough to loan me this place. One of the things we did at Georgia Southern was we invited local and statewide office holders, i.e. politicians, who make the rules for education who uh, open the coffers or not for education. We invited local and statewide office holders to come in and spend a day in classrooms, not just P-12 classrooms, but also here at the university to try to help them understand what it is that we do. And more often than not, after they spend that day, they're, they're just floored by what they learn. Now, in a politically charged environment, that doesn't mean they then run out the door and, you know, 
load billions of dollars <laughs> and other resources to help you accomplish what you want to accomplish. But the looks on their faces when they leave is a good start. <laughs> but imagine just having some, I don't know, lieutenant governor come and spend a day as a substitute teacher in a classroom and have that person go, oh my God, <laughs> how do you people do this? It's just incredible. Yeah, I'm mean, just like um, if I could if I could pause on that real quick. Yeah, what you're talking about is like highly competent, successful, communicative people who have risen through the ranks. This isn't some schlub, right? This is no, no. This is a successful individual, successful in his or her field, right? Competent, but still, Daniel. I mean, I hope it's better in Europe than it is here in the states, but. Um, <laughs> Teaching doesn't get the kind of respect that it deserves. And the more we can do to actually bring people's eyes to the classroom or to the program and help them understand, I mean, the, the better off I think we'll all be. It's, it, it's not going to change before the time I drop off the face of the earth, but uh, you know, maybe somewhere down the line we'll have people understand that you know, this is not, hey, nine months, and then they go play in the Bahamas for three months in the summertime. And no, man, the fact that you, most teachers uh, do professional development in the summertime or have other obligations related to their work, you know, it's a tough gig. It's a very tough gig, and people should come take a look at it. Yeah, teaching is a tough gig in a great many ways, but so is educating teachers and preparing them for that job. I wonder what you think the biggest grind of that gig is. Like, what's the part of training teachers that drives you bonkers and how do you grapple with that there's actually two there's there's two things that drive me crazy the first is and we've already really kind of touched on this a bit the first is bureaucracy or to put it another way the perceived need by some folks in upper echelon educational administration and, and even politicians to actually prescribe educational cures when the patient isn't even sick. Um, when, I, when I came to Georgia, when I came to Georgia Southern, the state of Georgia had just adopted a rule that all teacher candidates needed to successfully pass what's called EdTPA. I don't, I don't know if in Berlin you guys have anything along these lines, but EdTPA is kind of a portfolio evaluation system. And by the way, Georgia was not alone. This EdTPA thing came out of a educational reform initiative in California and kind of swept across, you know, as the latest flavor of the month kind of thing, swept across the country. And what teacher educators like myself and my faculty had to do was redesign our programs to make sure that the EdTPA portfolio assessment system could fit into the program and so that our teacher candidates would be able to pass the portfolio at the end. My problem with that is I have nothing against evaluating effective teaching and, and non-effective teaching, but my problem with it is what EdTPA is, did is they trained people to be portfolio evaluators, and then when every teacher candidate would send in their portfolio with videotapes of their classrooms and all other kinds of things, EdTPA would then send it off to one or two of these evaluators. And I had this horrible image of somebody sitting at their breakfast table in Nebraska, drinking their coffee, <laughs> looking at this video and deciding on the fate 
of a teacher candidate here in Georgia. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this is wrong. Right. It's this whole thing of, you know, let's, let's, let's do it differently. Let's try this. Let's try that. By the way, about a year and a half after I left Georgia Southern and retired, Georgia decided not to do EdTPA anymore. And I was like, well, thank you. Couldn't we have figured that out a little <laughs> earlier? <laughs> and by the way, EdTPA costs teacher candidates 300 bucks to take the test or to do the portfolio. And then if they don't pass all the sections, they have to pay another $100. It was just, it was crazy. So the first thing that the grind is, is this whole thing about bureaucracy. And as well-intentioned as they may or may not be, just folks above you who think that they've got the latest solution to a problem that really doesn't exist. The second grind, though, are those students that we were talking about earlier, um, the students who don't cut it. But here's what really irritates me about it. I was, when I was at the University of South Carolina, I was sitting at my favorite watering hole and the manager, since I was there quite often, he came over and he looks at me and he goes, hey, Bruce, what exactly do you do when you're not here? <laughs> And, and, I, and I told him of my job title at University of South Carolina, and in particular that Darth Vader side of it, where I had to go out and deal with young people who weren't necessarily doing what they needed to do. And he looked at me and he goes, hold on a second, I'll be right back. And he ran back into his office and he came out and he handed me an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, which was from the corporate office. I won't name the corporation. It was entitled Steps to Accountability. He says, we use this in training with our, with our wait staff all the time because customers are going to complain. And he said, you and I seem to have something in common here. I have customers who complain. You have teacher candidates who complain, if you will. And he showed me this sheet and he said, this is what we talk to our wait staff about, the steps to accountability. Well, there are five steps. I'll skip to the fourth and the fifth, which is where you want to get to. The fourth step is to accept responsibility, and the fifth step is to find a solution. Unfortunately, those teacher candidates who are struggling and who struggle mightily and who don't make it through the remediation processes, they fall on the bottom three rungs of the five-step to accountability ladder. Because the first step, as the restaurant manager said, he showed it to me and said, the first step is they'll just ignore it. You know, you, you tell them that they need to work on this and they'll just listen to you and it'll go in one ear and out the other. The second step is to deny it so that if a university supervisor or a coaching teacher or whatnot says something that you need to work on this, you're not doing this right, they just deny you. No, no, I'm doing it exactly the way you told me to. Well, no, you're not. Well, yes, I am. And that kind of thing. So they either ignore or deny, but the worst possible place that they can get and it's where I found the hardest cases, was they would end up on the third rung. They're not denying it. They're not ignoring it. They're certainly not finding a solution or recognizing a problem. The third step is they blame others. So the story I told you about the young lady in the school who, when we sat there and brought together the principal, the assistant principal, the coaching teacher, the teacher candidate, the university supervisor, and me, she sat there and literally pointed her finger at everybody in that room and said what they had done wrong, and she was completely blameless. I've grappled with that kind of candidate. I'm, and again, it, it's a small percentage, but man, you know how those small things that uh -huh. they can just get inside your head. I grappled with that one just way too many times. 
And eventually, of course, you have to, uh, you know, follow the protocols that are in place, as I've said before. But it really, really hurts me to watch teacher candidates blame other people for their failures. And, and teacher candidates, of course, <laughs> are not alone in that regard. We, we seem to have many public figures who can't seem to accept responsibility for the things that they do. It's an epidemic. I wish people would learn how to own up to their shortcomings. Here, here. You know, that and the bureaucracy are the things that are the biggest grinds for me in teacher training. I hear you, Bruce. Grappling with the bureaucracy, grappling with people who fail to take responsibility for their actions. That's the grind, man. I feel you. But you stuck it out, man. Indeed, you stuck it out for four decades. And you know, I can't help but wonder how your ideas about teaching and learning evolved over your distinguished four-decade career. Okay, this is going to sound like a cliche because it is a cliche. <laughs> um, but my, my biggest evolutionary realization through the years, here comes the cliche, it takes a village to raise good teachers, I, which is weird because I wasn't, and, and obviously the reason why it had to be evolutionary for me is because that's not what happened to me. I was prepared as a teacher at, at East Carolina University and then went out to Wyoming and, hey, I was the social studies department in Wyoming, so there was nobody to turn to, you know, to help yeah. me there. And there was, when I went to to uh, Berwyn Cicero. Actually, I took over a teaching role for a guy who left unexpectedly, and he had also left his students behind in many ways and shapes. And so I was so far pressed to just kind of catch his students up that, you know, I didn't reach out to anybody um, for help. I didn't even realize that there were people out there you know, who could probably help me do better. That was just probably youthful ignorance. Even uh, when I taught in Newport News, Virginia, I was so wrapped up in raising a family and and doing things like uh, coaching the golf team and working with the National Honor Society and all that kind of stuff that I really didn't think about, you know, if I'm stuck, who can help me? So this whole thing about raising, i put it that way, raising good teachers, I realized that when I was at Northern Illinois and I was in the College of Arts and Sciences and I walked across the street to talk to the people in the College of Education, which, by the way, was seen as not the right thing to do by other people in arts and sciences. That was, I always thought, kind of weird, but I, I recognized that there were some people across the street who could help me in what I was trying to do. And when I worked with P-12 principals and teachers in South Carolina and Georgia to craft meaningful learning experiences for teacher candidates, and then when I got involved with the with the NAPDS, you know, all of a sudden I was like, you know, this is not something that you do alone. I mean, it seems so obvious that I should have known that all along. But the fact that I didn't probably says something about the way teachers were prepared in, in a previous life. One of my very good friends at the University of South Carolina, she likes to remind me that when I came to South Carolina and she and I were talking about teacher preparation programs and whatnot, she specifically shared with me her view that the best thing in preparing teachers was to, quote unquote, build relationships. <laughs> and she always, she constantly, we talk about this a lot, we still talk about this to that day. When she said that, I looked at her and I smirked. 
I laughed. Hmm. I was like, oh, you, you can't be serious. That's just too kumbaya-like, you know? Daniel, I don't smirk anymore yeah. at that. Yeah. That's what I've learned. It's You can't do this alone. It takes a village to raise a really, really good teacher. And, and as kind of a sidebar to that, considering that my background was in secondary, you know, teaching history and whatnot, I never thought much about elementary teachers. I got to tell you, 25 or 40, take whichever number you want, 25 or 40 years of, of being in the education profession, I now have a huge appreciation for what elementary teachers do. I, I, I'm just floored by what it is that they need to do to survive in a classroom. Here, here, you know? here, here. And I was kind of poo-buying them in the same way I was smirking at building relationships. Um, but I don't smirk and I don't poo that anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I want to teach elementary kids. I've got no patience for that. <laughs> you know, I'll, take my, uh, I'll take my high school kids over the elementary kids. But, yeah, the biggest thing I've learned is that it, it really does take an awful lot of resources and an awful lot of people to effectively prepare really, really good teachers. And kudos to those who choose to go into the elementary field. You're a better person than I. <laughs> right on, man. So indeed, it does take a village, and it makes sense that you would have the humility to come to that realization in due time. At the same time, you get to yourself stand before the teachers that you're about to send out into the field one last time before they graduate before they begin their careers as educators. And I can't help but wonder, is there something in particular that you tend to say to the young people who are about to go out there and embark on this noble profession? All I said to them was, now go do good things. That was always my end line. And I think that they understood what I meant because they'd spent a number of semesters with me. And I think they understood my bent toward humanity. More recently, though, and particularly here at Georgia Southern, because even though I was the department chair, the teacher certification folks always wanted me to come give that send-off to the uh, teachers who were going out for their final semester of student teaching and wrapping it up. I've changed that message. And I changed it because I had the great privilege a few years back of going to the uh, graduation ceremony at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Mm -hmm. My son-in-law was graduating from the FBI Academy. And I had the privilege that day of listening to former FBI Director James Comey give advice to these, it's about 200 people at every graduation, 200 newly minted FBI agents. And he gave them five pieces of advice. And I sat there and I went, this isn't just for FBI agents. This is for anybody. And hey, I'm going to rip off James Comey's line and I'm going to use this. And so for the last, well, for pretty much the four years when I was department chair here at Georgia Southern, I would talk to those teacher candidates who were finally you know, finishing up their programs. I, I tell them, you know, this is stolen from James Comey and let's not get into politics, what you think about him. But, but here's what he told those FBI agents and here's what I'll tell you. There are five things. Why are there always five? I don't know. There are five <laughs> things. The first thing is find joy in what you do. 
when I say that to teacher candidates, you know, I, I really know that it resonates for them. I'm not so sure James Comey is saying that to FBI agents to find joy in what they do. But anyway, that's the, the first line that he chose. You know? So find joy in what you do. Second is work hard. The third is while you're doing those two things, find balance in your life. The fourth is respect all the people that you meet along the way. And finally, the fifth and final is respect the job. I think those five pieces of advice fit FBI agents. They fit teacher candidates. They fit electricians, engineers, models. And so I I look at them and I just say, you know, find joy, work hard, find balance, respect people, and respect the job. And then I'll finish by saying, now go do good things. Yeah. So that's my line. That's my line at the end. I love it. I love it. Now, look, in your time, you have found a great deal of joy. You've definitely worked hard. I hope at some point you found a balance. Yeah. And I know that you respect the people around you and you respect the job. But you're the only person with whom I'm in conversation on this season of the podcast who's not in the thick of it. You, sir, you're retired. The shoes are hung up. The story of your working life is over. So if we can, let's just take a moment to look back together, shall we? Sure. If you could commission one person to write the story of your career as a teacher educator, who would you commission, living or dead? Mm-hmm. And, and what do you hope they would write in the epilogue entitled simply legacy. Well, and that's weird, entitled simply legacy, because the person who I would pick to write that story of my career as a teacher educator actually has written a book whose title is a one-word title. It's titled Educated. Have you heard of this book? Tara Westover? You got it. You got it, buddy. Nice! But uh, one of the absolute best books, and if not, in fact, the best book that I've read in these last three and a half years of retirement, is Tara Westover's Educated. Yes. Um, For those who don't know Tara, she was born in a survivalist family in Idaho and had an exceptionally abusive father, and women were supposed to do this and not do that. And Educated is her story of how she escaped that really challenging existence and eventually earned a scholarship at Cambridge. She became a visiting fellow at Harvard and then went back to Cambridge to earn her PhD. I was so moved when I read that book. If she can write that about herself, she can certainly tackle my story as well. So, Well, I assure you that she's listening to this podcast oh, yeah? <laughs> and she is going to jump at the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's a great book. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I both yeah. read it. Uh, so we will get her to write there it. There we go. And in the final chapter right. where she discusses your legacy, what do you hope she writes? I'll give you two stories there and two answers to your question. When I retired from Georgia Southern, my dean, who was my immediate boss, he and I went out to dinner one night. And he said to me, he said, Bruce, you're the best department chair I've ever worked with. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, Tom, (laughs) I was a chair for four years. I barely was here. Surely you can think throughout, and he's been a dean at a number of places. And I said, you know, I appreciate the compliment, I said, but I don't buy it. I said, so tell me, 
Why do you say that? And he just looked at me and he goes, because you listened. Hmm. He said, you listened to your faculty, you listened to the teacher candidates, you listened to me, and listening is an incredibly powerful thing. And so if Tara were to finish my, my story, it would be simply, he took the time to listen. The other story, a little bit more flippant maybe, I once went to a national meeting of department chairs. It was actually um, new department chairs. We were trying to figure out our roles and whatnot. And as is typical of those kinds of educational meetings, they put us into small groups and gave us little challenges to come up with and whatnot. And one of the particular challenges was come up with a book title that epitomizes what you see as your role as a department chair. Hmm. And I was sitting around this table with like seven or eight people, and they were all coming up with these fancy education-laced terminology, stuff that I occasionally call edubabble. They were trying to squeeze as many $2 words into a 50-cent title as they possibly could. Yeah, yeah. And when I gave them my book title, <laughs> they just all looked at me and shook their head. Because my book title was, and I wouldn't mind this being my legacy as well, the book title was the door is open and there's Coke in the fridge, <laughs> which is how I operated here. And it's how I operated in, in all of my professional hats that I wore. You know, leave the door open and, and give somebody a Coke or actually one of my faculty members said he preferred Mountain Dew. So the door is open and there's Mountain Dew in the fridge. I'll take that. I'll take as a legacy that I took the time to listen and then I had an open door, which, of course, helped me to listen. So, Tara, if you're listening, make sure that uh, you squeeze that in toward the end, and I'd very much appreciate it. All right. I'm sure she's on it. Bruce, you've been a magnificent guest. This has been a total joy, and that should be enough, but I can't let you run without sharing with me two stories. Would you share the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure, and if you would be so kind to begin with the story of failure so that we can end appropriately, I should say, on a note of triumph. Ah. <laughs> All right. Uh, the story of professional failure doesn't sit directly in the teacher preparation realm. It fits all the way back at the beginning. When I took that job at that little tiny 125-student rural Wyoming school as the social studies teacher. I had this idea that I wanted to have my first class of high school uh, students write a term paper, a label that's not used a whole lot these days, term paper, um, on a historical subject. And as it turns out, the English teacher, she was the English department, she also had her students write uh, term paper. And so the two of us looked at each other and, and we said, hey, um, we could really take a burden off of students by having them write one term paper that happens to be on a historical topic. I'll grade the history part of it. You grade the English and grammar and all that kind of it was a great idea. The students loved it. But I violated one of those rules that I told you about earlier. So long story short, the students wrote the papers they handed them in to the English teacher. She brought them to me and said, do you want to read them first or should I? And I said, oh, hey, I'll take a look. I got some time. I'll go ahead and, and read them first. 
Now, you have to realize this is 1978 in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. It's pre-internet. So where the heck students were going to get resources to write a term paper was another story altogether. Right, right. But when I started reading the first paper, <laughs> I went, holy cow, this kid writes pretty good. And I read the next one. And uh, something's wrong here. So I went into the middle of the building, which was the library. And the primary source that was in there was a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. And I took one student's paper and I opened up the Encyclopedia Britannica to that topic. And I started reading. And sure enough, it was just totally and completely lifted straight from Encyclopedia Britannica. I went to the English teacher and I expressed dismay at this. And she looked at me and she said, hey, I tell them it's okay to copy as long as they cite the source. Oy. And I just shook my head. So what was the failure? <laughs> the failure was I hadn't taken the time to explain to students what I meant by a term paper and what the component pieces were and what my expectations were. I was a first-year teacher who made a really stupid decision, and I, and I paid the price for it. And uh, I share that story. I shared that story with a lot of my teacher candidates and tell them, you know, when I go back to this thing about always being prepared and it's better to be over-prepared than under-prepared, <laughs> I committed that sin the very first year of my teaching, and uh, it was not a good thing to do. I also share with my students the letter of resignation that I wrote when I left uh, Wyoming because I wasn't too thrilled with the uh, academic environment there. And the letter of resignation I wrote read, to whom it may concern, I have a great desire to return to the 20th century. <laughs> um, and I tell my teacher candidates, don't make that mistake either. You know, there is a place and a time for burning bridges, but this is not the place and this is not the time. And so don't be so full of yourself that you would actually send a, <laughs> a resignation letter like that. So I was embarrassed by the letter. I was embarrassed by my lack of preparation. And that was pretty much a professional failure. Yeah. But, uh, the professional triumph, you want that one? Yeah, give it to me. Well, of give course, the professional triumph is seeing people like you succeed. And I mean that in all truthfulness, although I'll give you a more concrete, what I think really was my number one professional accomplishment. And that goes back to that organization I talked about, the uh, National Association for Professional Development Schools. When I got to the University of South Carolina in 2001, South Carolina had been hosting professional development school conferences for a couple of years. And so in my new role, I was kind of assigned to run those conferences along with a logistics guy. It was always in the spring. Spring of 2002 was my first and spring of 2003. And as we started, we looked at each other and we went, you know, it's really nice that we get together for like four or five days every spring to talk about professional development schools and the kinds of things that we're doing around the country to enhance learning. Said, so, but wouldn't it be a really cool idea if we could establish an organization that would allow us to maintain constant communication for 365 days a year instead of just three or four at a conference? And so we worked from 2000, I say we, a um, bunch of great educators from around the country. Um, we worked for two years from 2003 to 2005 and then launched the National Association for Professional Development Schools in 2005. I was honored to be named the first president of that national organization. And then three years later, myself and two other um, educators sponsored by the NAPDS, we actually wrote 
the defining definition of, of PDSs. It was a little booklet called What It Means to Be a Professional Development School, and it identified what are now known in the profession as the nine essentials, that's in capital letters, the nine essentials of a PDS. And they have survived from 2008 until now. In fact, the NAPDS just recently uh, revised them a little bit. Uh, thankfully, they didn't decide that there were 10 or 8 or 12. Uh, they realized that we had hit the mark and that there were 9. They just tweaked them a little bit and came out with a second revised edition. I think that's other than, in all honesty, watching young people like you grow into the profession, I was proud to have played a role in getting that thing off the ground. And I, sir, am proud to have had the opportunity to have you on this podcast Bruce Field, thank you for your four decades of unbridled enthusiasm for education. Thank you for all that you do to support and to nurture people as they foray into the noble profession. Thanks for leaving your door open. Thanks for having a Coke and a Mountain Dew on the (laughs) fridge. Thanks for listening to people. It's been a pleasure listening to you. Thanks for being on the podcast, Bruce. Daniel, thank you so very much. And uh, hey, do good things. All right, kids, that's me and Dr. Bruce. So follow the show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review if that's something you do. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, you've got the means to give a few. Maybe hop over to patreon.com slash studs. Show a little love. It's getting to be that time of year, y'all. I'm giving exams and grading exams all week. I'm looking to the holidays. And I'm looking for opportunities to reflect on this first theme season of studs. Right? We've been taking a deep dive for the first time this season. And as we careen into the holiday season, I'll be reflecting with you. Got a couple surprises for you. And I'll be working assiduously on season seven, where I'll be talking to artists about their working lives. And I'm pretty sure that's gonna be the best season yet. But I gotta tell you, I honestly think every season of this podcast gets better. I don't know, maybe it's just the recency effect. But maybe I'm learning. Maybe I'm getting better at this whole thing. You would think, right? Keep working at it, keep plugging away, taking constructive criticism, getting to my 10,000 hours. Maybe, I haven't counted. In any case, as the days get shorter, I hope that you stay with me on the podcast. More importantly, I hope that you stay healthy. I hope that you stay well. I hope that you can feel like you can thrive. I appreciate you being here, and I want you on the top of your game. You'll get there. You'll get there. And I'll talk to you soon.